A reading from Revelation three seventeen through 22. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that, so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of God for the world. Um, today, today is January 17th. Um, uh, t- today, this morning, uh, on January 17th, 20 years ago, 1996, what time is about 11 a.m., three hours ago, I got the call that my father died. Um, I'll never forget, it was, it was the days of, of, of beepers, and, and my beeper went off, and um, I was in the, the subway train, I got off the subway train to, to get on uh, the phone um, of the station I was in in Brooklyn, and I called my uncle, and then my uncle called me to tell me that the hospital called him to say that my father expired. I'm sorry, milk expires. You know, TV shows expire. People don't expire. People, people die. And, and, and the funny thing is, and, and the amazing thing about God is, is 20 years and three hours from my father's death, death I get to preach. Not that I get to preach, but, but God knew that, that there would be healing that would be happening in my life over these 20 years. And that's what God does. God restores. God redeems. God renews. And so for any of you today, this day, January 17th, 2016, and if you are going through a heartbreak, if anyone that you love has died, you're going through something that is just hurting you intensely, you've got to remember that our God renews. Our God redeems. Our God restores, because that's who our God is. We're spending the next, uh, or we've, we've been in the middle of a six-week uh, sermon series uh, talking about the values of Providence Baptist Church. The value we're talking about today is hospitality. And so when we think about hospitality, I think we think about um, opening our home to others. And so, so that could be one way of hospitality or having an amazing stellar greeter system um, with Josh and, and Charlene and all the other folks that, that, that do um, greeting. And we think that's hospitality. And it is hospitality, opening up your house, making a space for others. But, but, but there are some stories, I think, that come to mind for me for hospitality. We all need a spiritual mentor. Philip Allen, where the heck are you? Philip Allen, backseat Baptist right there. Philip Allen has uh, uh, one of his spiritual mentors. His name is Nathan Porter. And Philip shared with me, and he shared sometimes a story of, of Nathan Porter. Back in the 1960s, he worked at First Baptist Atlanta. And for those of you that have lived in the South and remember the, ra- the, 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 the racial strife and the issues that were going on, in the 60s, some of this is, is, is native to you. And so he tells me a story about somewhere in the early 1960s while he was either on staff of 
First Baptist Atlanta or a Sunday school teacher at First Baptist Atlanta, there's word that all these African Americans were wanting to go to church. Can you imagine folks of different color wanting to worship Jesus? Crazy. So all of a sudden, these Bible-believing Christians, all the deacons and the elders of the church, they line up these big, big, huge steps that they had in First Baptist Atlanta, and they linked arms like this because they're going to keep out those, those folks, those black folks. So all of a sudden, Nathan Porter, he's like, I'm not going to have any of this. So Nathan Porter, he goes outside the church. He walks down the stairs. He goes underneath the, the locked arms of these men, and he walks up to these African-American men standing in front of um, the, the church and says, you know what? You don't need to go in there. We'll have church right here. Now that's hospitality. The Joseph Center, many of you are involved in the Joseph Center, and we don't feed food to the homeless. We don't volunteer and just do a good deed. No. We sit with our neighbors, men and women and children, and we, we, we break bread with them, and we eat with them, and we look them in the eye, and we get to know them by name. And some of them may even sing a song on this piano. Some of them, we may help usher them toward heaven or get their mother from Mexico up here. That is Hospitality. Um, or homes for youth. Homes for youth. When these teenagers that have no place to go, no place to stay, we are creating a whole ministry, and this church is partnering with Homes for Youth. That's hospitality. But the hospitality I want to talk about is different. It's, it, yes, hospitality is going to the other. Yes, hospitality is making space. But the hospitality I want to talk about is, is, is making hospitality to Jesus. <laughs> because we can do all these things. We can make space for others. We can um, uh, go to the other. But I think there's something that happens in our life when we provide hospitality in our lives for Jesus. And I mean true hospitality, not just let Jesus Christ into your heart and everything's okay now. I'm talking about making hospitality to Jesus into your emotions, into your wounds, into your past, into your dreams, into... Uh, your fears, into your anxieties, into your identity. I mean, there's something inside all of us that, I mean, St. Augustine said it best. There's a God-shaped hole in our heart that only God can fill. And why don't we, I guess, provide hospitality to Jesus? I think there are three reasons. One, Especially in a church like this, I love y'all, but some of y'all, I'm one of them. We got control issues. And so I was hoping for a laugh, okay. <laughs> some of us, we got control issues. And we don't want to relinquish control. And that's why we haven't provided hospitality to Jesus into our, whole, uh, into our hearts and our souls and our lives. Another reason I don't think we've provided hospitality to, to Jesus is that we're just too ashamed. For some of us, we have some portions of our life where we're just too ashamed to invite Jesus there. We don't want him in that portion of our life, into that memory, into that hurt, into the pain. Something that happened to us or something that we did, or there's just too much pain. Why the heck would we want Jesus to go, this perfect man, into this portion of our heart that we don't want, and we don't want to even see? There are portions of our childhood or our old relationship, something that is so painful, why would we want to go back there? And so we don't provide hospitality to Jesus because it's too much pain, too much shame, or we just don't want to relinquish control. And we all have wounds. 
We all have wounds. Some of us have wounds from our childhood. Some of us have wounds that have, could have happened of, 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 a, of, a, of a breakup of a relationship years ago, of a dream that fell apart. Some of us are anxious. And some of us have that, that gnawing feeling that we're not enough. <laughs> we have that gnawing feeling that we're not enough. That's never God's intention. God came, Merlin Merritt, my father-in-law, his favorite verse, um, God came that we may have a full life, John 10, 10. Or some of us are just slaves. Some of us are slaves to our emotions, or some of us are slaves to behaviors. Uh, folks with addictions that I've dealt with in my hospice, yeah, they're broken, but also it's slavery, to be slavery to drugs, slavery to alcohol, slavery to pornography. There's slavery that happens where you're just owned. And so why haven't we done this? I think it's a worship issue. Um, you know, church, steeple, people. <laughs> worship is something that happens in a... Do you all know what I mean by that, by, by worship? We can come to church and we can worship and we can sing wonderful songs, but why haven't we having this hospitality to, to Jesus? It's a worship issue. And, and stay with me with this. In three weeks, we're going to watch the Super Bowl. And we watch the Super Bowl with all the money and the pizzazz and, and whose team that we're, we're, we're cheering for, go, go Carolina, is that, my giants are out of it, is, is we're, we want something that's bigger than us. We want something to, to have identity with. And so, why have we not had hospitality to Jesus because we'd have to worship him is because we're worshiping maybe the wrong things. And so if you look at any house where someone's an alcoholic or drug addict, you'll see the sacrifices that they've made for that addiction. Or maybe moods, maybe anger. How about, how about forgiveness? Huh. It breaks my heart. As a hospice chaplain, I'll talk to folks in their 60s and 70s and 80s. They haven't forgiven folks who've, who, who hurt them 50, 60 years ago. Huh. That's a worship issue. They worship their emotions over God saying, forgive them. So, as we talk about providing hospitality to Jesus, to our souls, to our church, to our emotions, to our relationships, to our past, to our wounds, providing hospitality to the one who will fill us and free us and heal us more than anyone else can, I want you to learn three things of how we show hospitality to Jesus. The first, we must surrender to him. Second, we must partner with him. And third, we must repent to him. We must surrender to him. We must partner with him. And we must repent. I'm going to start with a little story first. Um, everyone, everyone has some like, favorite uh, pastor that they listen to. I know a lot of y'all here, it's uh, maybe Richard Rohr. Uh, for me, it's Tim Keller. Maybe for some of y'all, it could be Billy Graham. One of my favorite pastors I listen to his name is Greg Boyd. Greg Boyd is, oh, Ashley isn't here. Greg, oh, you know Greg Boyd? Booyah, you too. All right. So Greg Boyd, he's a pastor in Minneapolis, Minnesota, of um, Bethel, uh, Bethel Church out there. Aside from being a pastor, he was also a seminary professor. He was a seminary professor at uh, Bethel Seminary. And, and for those of you that know this, he was fired by John Piper. That might mean something to y'all. Not, never mind. Not, I'm not, I'm not, if you're all Presbyterian, you go, oh, okay. So Greg Boyd, he was a teaching class in the New Testament. And as he taught this class in the New Testament, um, he was talking about the Trinity. 
And the Trinity, as, as Christianity, Orthodox Christianity believes, is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so one day when he was teaching on the doctrine of the Trinity, there's this one young lady, probably in her 20s in this class, who had a really, really hard time with the concept of God being Father. And, and she had a lot of energy with this. And she said, no, I can't believe God is Father. No, I can't do that. I can't go there. She was fine with the Holy Spirit and Jesus, but no. So he noticed that she had a lot of energy with this. So he knew there was more to the story. So he invited her to his office, and he sat down, and he goes, tell me about this. Tell me about what your feelings about God being Father. Um, um, tell me about all the energy you have with this. And then she goes, I cannot call God Father because the only Father I knew was my Father, and if God is anything like my Father, that is not a good God. She goes, what do you mean? He goes, what do you mean? And she would say how her father was, was, an, was an alcoholic, um, a drunk, toxic, violent, abusive. And so there were many nights that um, he'd be out at the bar, and he would come home, slamming his feet around the, 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 the house, walking upstairs, and he would go to her room and just start whacking on her and taking all his, his, his anger out on her and cursing her out and just being violent and destructive and toxic. And she says, if that's what God as Father is, I want nothing to do with it. And so as any good pastor does, he listened to her, he gave her space, he showed her hospitality. And he says, I don't blame you. If that's what you think a father is, why would anyone want to call God Father? I don't blame you. He goes, it sounds like you got some healing to do. He said, you know, maybe there's some counseling you may need to do to heal your heart. He goes, but, but I want to offer you an idea. He goes, I want you to maybe use your imagination right now when it comes to God. So he says, I'd like you to surrender this memory to God, surrender this memory to Jesus, but also to, in, and, and please hear this, to inject him into that story to inject Jesus into that story. I want you to inject Jesus into that story. And so one day, as she was kind of mulling over what he said, mulling over that story of what happened, as she mulled over that story of what it was like to be a little girl, because when her dad would come home and start beating her up, she eventually learned she would go to the bathroom on the second floor, hide underneath the sink, in the, in the cupboard underneath the sink, so he wouldn't find her. He eventually did find her. And so when those memories of being hurt and abused by her dad as a little girl were, fl- were flushing back, she was like, okay, I'm surrendering this to God, but that wasn't working. So she started to inject Jesus into the story. And so as she kind of reimagined that story as a little girl, she saw herself underneath the sink in, in the cupboards with the cupboard shut in the dark. And instead of hearing these drunk footsteps coming down the hallway, all of a sudden... She heard or she imagined the sweet, beautiful footsteps of Jesus kind of coming down the hallway. But not only that, she kind of had him playing hide-and-go-seek. We'll, we'll call her Mary. And he was going, Mary, where are you? Where are you? I'm going to find you. And then all of a sudden, the footsteps got closer. And then all of a sudden, she heard the footsteps walk into the bathroom. And then all of a sudden, she heard Jesus imagining in her mind, crouching down in front of that little cabinet underneath the sink. 
And then all of a sudden, Jesus had his eyes wide open and this big, beautiful smile at her. And he goes, there you are. I found you. And then he grabbed her up, hugged her, and says, I love you. And I got you. And I'm never going to let you go. That is who Jesus is. Can you imagine the healing, the comfort, the peace that this gal had? And, and while it may seem like a trick that you're doing, I don't believe it's a trick with your mind when you believe that Jesus is alive, when you believe that he is good, that he will never hurt you. For many of us, there are some hurts and memories that we must submit to him. In verse 20, which I said during the children's sermon, Scripture says, or Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come and eat with him and he with me. But some of us have not let him in in general, or some of us have not let him in into certain portions of our life, certain portions of our memories, of our wounds, of our emotions, of our identity. And and it's not that we're bad people. It's not that we're bad people that we haven't provided hospitality to Jesus and to our souls and to our hearts. It's not that we're cold. I just don't think we know who he is. I worry that some folks may have been taught that Jesus is, and this kills me, where Jesus was a get-out-of-hell card. Maybe some of you grew up with this. You get Jesus, you're not going to hell, and everything's fine. That's not what this is about, the gospel. Or maybe Jesus was some cosmic rabbit foot against harm, like, oh, you choose Jesus, you got this perfect life. That's not how this works. Some of you have been there, okay. There we go. Or some folks may think Jesus was a prophet or a wise man or some social revolutionary. And while Jesus was a teacher and while Jesus was wise and while Jesus is good, he is so much more than that. For those of you that know C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis uh, put it this way about Jesus. C.S. Lewis wrote, Some people will say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. But I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. My my goal is for, my hope, my deepest hope, is for, for, for all of us, for everyone, to see that Jesus loves us more than we can imagine. That he will never hurt us, that he was sinless, he rose from the grave, and we remember that he's alive. And, 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 and to, to put Jesus in his place, Brene Brown is a great writer, and I love her stuff. <laughs> Or there's Socrates or Confucius, and they give advice. When Jesus tells us to do something, it is not advice. It is what we do. 
There's a quote I read recently in a book that said, and this kills, this, this kills me, it says, Jesus' own self-understanding did not include thinking and speaking of himself as the Son of God, whose historical intention or purpose was to die for the sins of the world, and his message was not about believing in him. To me, that is unequivocally wrong. He did know who he was. He did die for our sins. That is clear all through Scripture. And, and it's not, and there are some folks, I went to Union Theological Seminary. Charles? Never mind. Hi. Okay. And Union Theological Seminary would say, oh, you've got Gospel of John, who would think of Jesus being God, blah, blah, blah. No. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all point to Jesus of who he is. You look at all the letters of all the folks that wrote the stuff in the Bible, from Peter to John to, he, obviously, Hebrews. The whole Bible is pointing toward who he is. Uh, Paul. Paul in, in uh, Philippians 2 wrote, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. I, I was talking to a uh, volunteer. Um, for those of you that don't know, I'm a hospice chaplain at Four Seasons Hospice. And I was talking to one of my volunteers just earlier this week. And she was telling, Bible, telling me Bible studies that she was doing and saying, all religions are the same and, it's, and, and you just need to be nice. You just got to be good. But you know what? That's even one of the first things. How good you have to be. <laughs> How good you have to be to be loved by God. Okay, or let's, let's look at logic. Every religion says, here's what you have to do to get close to God. Every religion says, if you do this, God will hopefully love you. Our, our belief in the gospel says God became one of us, and God cut the gap between you and God. Why wouldn't you want this? And I'm not talking about y'all. I'm just, I'm, I'm venting. This is what I would have said to my volunteer. I couldn't do this. I need my job because baby's got to eat, okay? <laughs> but why wouldn't you want the Bible to be true is what I wanted to say to this gal. Every religion says, every religion says there's sin. We're not the only one that says there's sin. Every religion says there's sin. Every religion says, here's what you have to do. Islam, Judaism, um, Hindu, all of them said, here's what you have to do to get close to God. Our religion, our faith system says, here's what God did to come close to you. And they all believe that we, they have sin, but they said, here's what you have to do to clean yourself from sin. How do you know when you're done? But when Jesus died on the cross, he said three words. Say it with me. It is finished. Isn't that the most beautiful thing you've ever heard in your life? And so that's the God that I, I hope we see. So while I do believe that Jesus Christ on the cross defeated sin and Satan and death, I don't think it stops there. And please stay with me in this part. Not only was he our substitute on the cross, I also believe, I also believe that Jesus was a voluntary victim. I also believe that Jesus was a voluntary victim. What do I mean by this? 
Jesus went through what we went through. And some of you may be going through this now. Jesus went through heartbreak. He went through emotional pain. He went through physical pain. He went through estrangement. He went through horror. And why? And if you say to me, oh, to die our sins and to die on the cross, okay, but I don't think that's the whole answer. Jesus was a voluntary victim. He went through all these hellish, horrible things voluntarily by choice because many of us will go through hell and hurt and pain, not by choice. Many of us are going to go through estrangement. Many of us are going to go through people betraying us, people hurting us, people abusing us, dreams being dashed. And so when people said, oh, God understands, and you're like, what does that mean? You look at the cross, you look at the life of Jesus, and you're like, you know what, he does get it. This is good. This is a good God who who voluntarily chose to be a victim because many of us who may have gone through somehow being a victim, we didn't have a choice. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, Charles, I'm going, to pick up my, I'm going to pick on our school today. And so when my school talks about Jesus just coming to, to set the oppressed free, and yes, Jesus did, he went to the outcast and he went to the oppressed, but you know what? The, the true God of the Bible knows what it's like to be oppressed. We're in North Carolina. Slavery probably occurred right on this land. What use is a Jesus who's just going after the oppressed, what use is he for slavery 200, 300 years ago? But what if Jesus really is God who became man, who went through literal hell, and so when those slaves were on the ships, torn from their homes, coming here, going through all kinds of hell again, Jesus can do just as Anne Voskamp said in the quote, the word has nail-scarred hands, that cup over our cup our face close, wipe away the tears running down, has eyes to look deep into our brimming ache and whisper, I know, I know. It is the eyes of the God man who came and knows the pain. So while I believe we must show hospitality to Jesus. By surrendering everything to him, I also believe we need a partner with him. As a hospice chaplain, there are all these folks, especially Christians I'll talk to, and, they'll, and, and their friends will say when they're dying or when they're sick or when they're grieving, they'll say, oh, look, Jesus beat death. Or they'll say, oh, be of good cheer or whatever. You know what? Sometimes there's a time not to go to the Bible to just cheer yourself up. Sometimes you need a partner. You know how they say misery loves company? It's different when it's with God. The same God who was crucified and beaten on a Thursday night to a Friday, dead, that same God rose again on Sunday. We need a partner with Jesus when we are going through our pain. Another story. A few years ago, um, when I was a chaplain out in Texas, there was a nurse I was talking to. Her father died. This nurse was, I don't know, 30s, 40s, something like that. And as I was providing pastoral care after her father died, she was telling me one of the problems that she had was that she could never cry. I'm like, all right, that's interesting. That's fine. It's normal. But then as I talked to her more, she did something called compartmentalizing. Bill Clinton did that, if that's a new term too. Compartmentalizing. 
And so as I taught her more, why should compartmentalizing, and this is rough to tell the parents if you need to tell your kids where this is going. Um, it's another story of another young girl with pain in her past. She told me between the ages of 9 and 12 how she went through sexual abuse at her home with some family member. I don't know if it was dad or uncle or well, I don't know what it was. I forget. But for a three-year time span, she was going through sexual abuse. And that is evil, and that is horrible, and that is decrepit, and that is from hell itself. For, 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 for a terrible violation for that to happen. And while I talked to this girl, the girl, woman, as I talked to her and I said this, and I affirmed this is horrible and this is evil, and so and no young girl or boy or whatever should ever go through something like this. And I said, yes, you do have some hard work of, of forgiving you have to do. And you do have some counseling you do need to go to. But I was inspired by that story I told you about Greg Boyd before. I said, besides forgiving, besides going to counseling, I want you to partner with Jesus in this story. And so I said, because she was a Christian, I know I can say this to her, I said, Jesus understands your violation. I said, just as the nails went through Jesus' hands and the nails went through Jesus' feet and the spear violated his body, in the same way you were violated and you were overpowered by someone that overpowered you by evil intentions, the same thing happened to Jesus. So I ask you to see how exactly what happened to him as it happened to you. Our God really does know how you feel. This is why I love Jesus. This is why he's awesome. He's not a get-out-of-hell card-free. He's not someone that just you know, fights for social justice. He's a God that knows the hell we are going through or the hell that we've been through. And he also rose again. He is our voluntary victim. There's something very isolating about going through pain. And maybe some of you are going through really horrible pain today. Maybe pain from a relationship, pain from a dream that hasn't come true. And there's something really, really, really isolating about pain where no one understands. And you may have some great pastors that may take care of you, but sometimes even the best pastor may not fully understand. But when Jesus is on the inside... Someone really understands. So why did Jesus do this? Why was he a voluntary victim? He did it for us. He did it for us. Hebrew 2, 2 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Whatever pain you have gone through or will go through, I ask you to partner with Jesus in that pain. Revelation 3.21, as Martha, right? Did I get the right Smith child? Okay. Martha read today, says, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. 
I believe we need to show hospitality to Jesus by partnering with him in our past, partnering with him in our present, partnering with him in our future, because we will all go through pain. And our God voluntarily went into pain so we would never be alone in our pain. The last thing, as I mentioned, we need to do, we need to surrender to him, we need to partner with him, we also need to repent. So, marriage. We're going to talk about marriage for a second. Marriage can be hard. You know what's even harder? Marriage to me. I'm just saying. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Jesus. Jesus. Got to me a few Pentecostals here, Josh. Okay. So, marriage. Repent. There are times that we all get we all get upset we're human, but there are times there are things we do when we're hurting. And we all do different things. Some people yell, some people scream, you know, whatever it is. I turn icy and I get distant. There's nothing okay with that. It's okay to be upset at your spouse. That that happens. But getting icy and distant and emotionally shutting down is not okay because on on July 26, 2008, as Julie and I stood in a church in Waco, Texas, and, and, and the pastor said, um, do you take this woman to have and to hold, for richer or for poorer, for sickness and health, for better or for worse? And in front of God, and a covenant not only to my wife, but also to God, that's the covenant I made. And so when I get upset, and I get icy, and I get distant, and I shut down, that is idolatry. That means that my emotions, my opinions on how I treat my wife becomes my God. And that's not okay. And so we, we all do these things. And it's not just marriage. It could be other things where we choose our emotions, our behaviors in a way where we think we have the final answer. And if we're following Jesus Christ, we follow his ways. He's the boss, not us. I mentioned pastors that influence us. A pastor that's influenced me, and if any of you are in my Sunday school class, you'll know the name, and I'll look at my other Gordon Conwell. Well, I'm going to apply. Tim Keller. Tim Keller influences me. And Tim Keller wrote this book about marriage. And it is quotes like this that I need to anchor me in the gospel. He wrote, We must say to ourselves something like this. Well, When Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you are so attractive to me. No, he was in agony and he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He said, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they are doing. He loved us not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. That is why I'm going to love my spouse. Speak to your heart like that, and then fulfill the promises you made on your wedding day. I'm going to repeat a little bit of it. He wrote, he was in agony, and he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him. And the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. 
He loved us not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. I am not the boss of how I treat my wife in my marriage. Jesus is the boss. It is something I need to remind myself every single day. And so the word repentance, the word repentance is from the Greek word, Greek word? Okay, yay. Love having pastors in the front row. The word repentance is from the Greek word metanoia. And so some of y'all may hear the word repent, and you may think, okay, repent means feel like a jerk. No. The word repent, it's a military term, metanoia, and essentially what it means was when you had a whole cavalry, a whole regiment of these Roman soldiers going in a direction when their leader, the captain or, or whatever, when their leader saw that they were going into danger, he would say metanoia, which means turn around and go the other way. So when I'm thinking I'm boss on my attitude and my behavior that doesn't look like God, doesn't glorify him, does not look like the gospel, I need to repent because I'm going into danger. Being icy cold, being emotionally distant is going into danger. But forgiving and loving and dying for your wife as as Christ died for the church, that's the gospel. The first part of the scripture said, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so you can become rich and wear and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see me. Those whom I love, I rebuke in discipline. So be earnest and repent. My deepest desire, my deepest desire is for you to see Jesus for who he is and to show him hospitality by making space in your actions, by making space in your wounds, by making space in your anxieties, by making space in your dreams, by making space in your hopes, by making space in your daily routine. That is the hospitality that I believe that truly matters. It is what changes a life. Jesus is the source of life. He is the source of perfect love. And in the midst of your heart and soul, he will heal you when you let him in. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, after a night of beating, after having all his friends and and family abandoning him and leaving him, as as Jesus, as the God-man hung on the cross, and he yelled out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? as he knocked on the door of heaven, as he knocked on the door of his father, that door was slammed on him. And that door was slammed on him. So it would always be open for us. This is a God that will never let you go, that will be with you in your deepest pain, and loves you more than you can imagine. Will you bow your heads and pray with me, please? If you haven't asked Jesus to be the Lord, the Savior, the King, the love of your life, your past, to be the ultimate fulfillment of your heart, I ask that you surrender your life to him today. We have all tried to keep control of certain aspects of our lives, and it has ultimately caused devastation. I ask you to surrender what you have never surrendered to him, your wounds, your abuse, your broken heart, your fears, your anger, a grudge, a disappointment you have never gotten over. 
If you haven't been baptized, I ask that you make that commitment or give your life to him today. And that God who is alive loves you more than you can imagine, and he will truly never disappoint you. Amen.